What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with writer-director Bill Persky. Bill Persky has won five Emmys. He's won them for writing, for directing, and for producing. He was part of the Dick Van Dyke Show. In fact, at one point, he and his partner, Sam Denoff, became the showrunners. They wrote 29 episodes of the Dick Van Dyke Show, including a number of the classic ones. He later went on with Sam to create That Girl, starring Marlo Thomas. And from there, he did a number of things, including (laughs) a project with Orson Welles. And that's what we're going to get into this week. We're going to talk about Orson Welles, also his transition into directing, what it's like to be a showrunner, some stuff about pilots, and a little bit more about the Dick Van Dyke Show. If you missed part one, after you listen to this one, go back and check out that one. Bill Persky, part two this week on Hollywood and Levine. How did you get into directing? Um, cautiously. <laughs> uh, one day, uh, Jerry Paris had to go someplace. And Carl said, well, Billy, you, you just keep going. And it was the most terrifying moment of my life. I mean, I was standing with the cast. They were in a corner. And I said, how the fuck do I get him out of this corner, you know? And, of course, after that girl, which, you know, we had wonderful support on Danny Arnold and and stuff. Although I will say uh, there was a time when they were on the stage and I was the only one on the lot. And they said, "Uh, we're having problems. Can you come down? So now I went down to the stage and I happened to sit in a a stool that had all of the lighting directed to it. And now all of the crew, everybody is looking at the genius who created this and how is he going to fix it? No pressure there. I don't remember what I said, but I do remember the pressure of it, of being the guy. And suddenly Mm -hmm. everybody else just looking at the guy. But the directing... I didn't, it was, 
when I was like writing script, uh, writing pilots or whatever the hell it is, and people were, and I just decided I don't want anybody else to tell me what this is about or to show me what this is about. So I, I started to direct. And the first thing I directed was a That Girl. And God, there was a scene in it that was like a chain reaction in the restaurant where she was working so that it went through six different things before someone got hit with a bowl of soup or whatever it was. So I thought, mm-hmm. how the hell do I do this? Has anyone ever done something like this before? <laughs> and it was just learning to have confidence in what you wrote and what you saw when you were writing it and then how to get everything else to the first thing I really directed I wrote a pilot for Ted Bessel the most amazing actor comedian never got credit for how wonderful he was and I said you really have to have something that shows who you are So I wrote a pilot for him that no one asked me to. I just wanted to write it for him, which was unheard of then. Nobody wrote anything that they weren't going to get paid for. And it was Mm -hmm. called Bobby Parker and Company. And I don't know, the pilot is around somewhere. And the only thing I can say about it is (laughs) it was before its time, way before, because it it was about a guy who was in therapy And Tom Poston was his therapist. And his mother was Joan Blondell. And based on my own life, I always knew that wherever I was and whatever I was saying, somewhere my mother and father were talking to me. So this show was that his parents followed him wherever he went. And they just sat there. And timing out, just kind of in his mind type of they thing? They were there in the room, sitting okay. on the side talking to him. And the timing right. of his responses was listening and rejecting. And it's, it, it was it was a wonderful show. And uh, anyway, so I wrote this for Teddy. And we had no idea what was going to happen with it. And then one day I was having lunch at uh, Universal with uh, not Sid Scheinfeld, who was the head of Universal, but the guy who was just below him, Norman, Norman somebody. And he said, so uh, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I wrote this thing that I really love. And he said, well, who, who ordered? I said, nobody. He said, well, why'd you write it? I said, because I wanted to and because I really wanted to do something for Ted Bessel that showed how brilliant he was. And he said, oh, can I read it? And I said, yeah, for $25,000. If anyone was interested and want to read it, I wanted $25,000. So Sid Scheinfeld, who was the head of the studio, was at the next booth and he leaned over and he said, Sid, Bill wrote this thing that no one ordered. He just wrote it because he wanted to. And I'd like to read it, but it'll cost $25,000. He said, okay. So that was how that show was made. And uh, it was in 1970, I guess. So we did the pilot for NBC. 
And it was a very, as you can imagine, a very tricky thing to direct the, between the timing and, and his father, based on my father, was always in an overcoat with a muffler and galoshes in the <laughs> middle of a boiling sun. That's what he had. And his mother, Joan Blondell, was, uh, was in a house coat and she had a mixing bowl. <laughs> she was old. <laughs> so it was a very difficult thing to direct. And it was really my first big thing of directing. I mean, on that girl, I was, no one's going to let anything happen to me. But now I came in a Universal and I knew no one on the crew. And they were, they were not welcoming me, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said to them in the first day, I said, guys, this is a really complicated thing. And uh, I'm my first real directing job. So feel free, suggestions, whatever. I'm open. So we went through the first days, dailies, and the cameraman had lied to me about a couple of things. He'd say, yeah, well, that's good. And then I looked, I said, no, that's not what it should be. So I said, I am now my own cinematographer, which I have no idea what to be. But I know I trust myself more than I trust him. Well, that created a lot of friendships. <laughs> but at any rate, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, when I ran the pilot at NBC... I'm very big at stunned silences and things I do. <laughs> there were guys, there were African-Americans, there were wasps. That, you know, there, what a network makeup was at that point. And uh, the whole thing was that NBC was wondering whether the audience, or the, the America was ready to have a pathetic guy in, in therapy trying to work his life out. So when the lights came up, there was a stunned <laughs> silence. <laughs> and then, Not the reaction and you're then hoping for. The African-American guy said, that's me. And then a Jewish guy said, no, that's me. And then a wasp said, so what came out was the universality of the honesty with which I was exposing myself. Not physically, but it was just right. a really a lesson about the more truthful you are and the more honest you are about yourself, the more everybody else is going to relate to it. So the network didn't feel that the world was ready for it. But about a, two years later, uh, we were doing a rewrite of The Man Who Came to Dinner, the Moss Hart Mm -hmm, yeah. the Kaufman and we were Hart doing play. it for the Hallmark Hall of Fame and uh, Orson Welles was the only person who Wait. could play it but he couldn't uh -huh. come to the United States because he owed so much money that the minute he got off the plane they'd take his shoes you know so <laughs> the wonderful experience we did it in London and I got to spend six weeks with Orson Welles at it can't begin to describe it. Was that a oh, good experience or a bad experience? Because I've heard horror no, stories was, about it Orson Welles. It was a great experience for me because I revered him. And 
I knew there was nobody either on the earth then or wherever he is now who could tell him what to do. You know, they just mm-hmm. weren't going to beat Orson Welles. And the director we had, Buzz Kulik, who was a really great director, he was going to be the guy. And so they were very confrontational with each other. And uh, in the first two days, Wells was using these Churchill cigars that the character would use, and they were like $20 a piece. Mm-hmm. And he would take one and then throw it away, and then he'd <laughs> gone through uh, $500 a day in cigars. And Buzz said, Orson, you, you can't use the cigars like that. You, you have to be responsible. And so, I mean, and then he walked off the set. And so I said, <laughs> okay, now what? Because we were producing also. And so I called uh, Upman, which was the company. I said, let me speak to your public relations guy. And I said, Orson Welles is doing The Man Who Came to Dinner, and he is using your Churchill cigars. Oh, my God. I said, the thing is, we're going through a lot of them in rehearsal, and I'm just wondering if there was any way you would see value in him doing it and provide the cigars. Oh, he said, well, let me meet with everybody. I am sure we will. So then I went out, and I said to Orson, I've worked it out with this, and he couldn't do it the first day until he had a meeting. So I said, well, send over a box and I will pay for them. So we came out and, uh, and to go back in rehearsal and have a meeting and the cigar was handled. Buzz Kulik was furious at me for giving in to him. And I said, we're not giving in to him. He's the star of the show. Are you going to blow it over a bunch of fucking cigars? So anyway, he had them the first day, and he never knew that I paid for those, I thought. But then the next day he said to me, thank you, Billy. I said, for what? He said, for buying my cigars. I said, well, how'd you know? He said, I know everything, you know. So that made me his go-to guy, and I sat for hours with him, and the stories Oh, my God. That must have been fantastic. It was incredible. Yeah. Anyway, he was drinking, but no one knew how because all he drank was black coffee. And he had this woman who was a a slave to him. I mean, she was an older woman, but, I mean, she would die for him. And I went to her and I said, Miss Ferguson, Mr. Wells is drinking and it's causing problems and he is going to be hurt because of this. What is it? How is he getting it? And we have to stop. And she was in tears and she said, it's the coffee. I said, what about, she said, it isn't coffee. It's red wine. (laughs) So I talked to him. Oh God. Yeah, it must have been a fun conversation. Yeah, well, you know, but he knew how much I revered him. And and in the last scene, we were ready to rap. And he said to Buzz, Buzz, uh, in that last speech of mine, you're holding me by, you know, in a waist shot. There was no way to know. 
except there were some monitors that he couldn't see. But he knew so much that he knew in a telescopic lens where his frame was. And he said, so for the last two lines, I would like you to come a bit tighter. And Bud says, Orson, this is the shot I've chosen and this is the shot we'll use. And at that point, Wells said, Mr. Kulik, you are talking to the director of Citizen Kane. And over the speaker, (laughs) Kulik said, in my opinion, a very highly overrated film. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That was exit left. It's now 11 (laughs) o'clock at night. The British guys have to vote whether they'll work past that. The show is over without the last two lines. So we hold the crew. They hated him, too, because they were with the director. So I said, Miss Ferguson, come talk to me. Where is he? She said, well, he's at the Southampton Yacht Club. He's having dinner. I said, oh. She said, yes. 11 okay, o'clock at night. Called Prince okay. Charles. I said, I would like to go to the club and have dinner. So that was it. So I went over there. First Jew to ever walk through those doors, I'm sure. Okay, I bet and, you're right. Uh, I sat with him and I said, you know, Orson, Buzz has an issue of trying to be the guy who beat Orson Welles. And you and I both know that man, that person, that creature, that force will never exist. You have very tentative hold on your career because of problems. I said, and to let this be the one that you didn't finish a show because you were insulted. I said, you'll never, you really will affect ever working again. And he said, well, let me finish my uh, soul and I'll come back with you. Provide. Let me finish my 17 Pink's hot dogs and then we'll do it. He said, provided that Buzz apologizes. Not to me personally, but over the speaker with the whole crew present where he insulted me. So now was the hard part. I had to convince buzz and it was really difficult but we came in everybody is there it's one o'clock in the morning and uh over the loudspeaker orson comes in he says uh, i'm back mr kulik i understand you have something to say <laughs> it was a long pause uh yes mr wells uh i perhaps i misspoke And we can talk about it later, but right now, as professionals, we have to finish this show, and I'm sorry that I caused that problem. He said, thank you. And then we went and finished the show. There was a rap party, and I went in to say goodbye to him. And he said, well, Billy, we have to go to the rap party. They're expecting us. And I thought, of all the things in the world, nobody at that rap party wants to see Orson Welles. 
<laughs> but he said it's just you know they've been my crew i've worked with them i they are they deserve my thanks so now the studio the rap party was in the cafeteria on the third floor and wells goes in to total and complete silence and he said well i can't stay long <laughs> <laughs> he said, but I couldn't go home without thanking you for this wonderful experience of working with you. You are one of the better crews I've ever worked with in my life. And I would love to stay, but I have other. <laughs> and we walk out together. And now he has a he has a livery chauffeur with boots, hat, boots, uh -huh. okay. Rolls Royce. Mm -hmm. And he says... Uh, uh, Sheldon, I have to pee. And he said, well, okay, sir. And he runs down and the door to the bathroom on the next floor is locked. And he runs down and he says, uh, Wells is down there and he has to come down to first floor. He said, well, this is, this is locked too, sir. I don't know what to do. He said, well, let's just go outside. And running through that studio in the whole town of Southampton, England, is an old Roman wall. And wherever it existed, they built roads around it. Buildings had a, have uh, an atrium so that they did. So now outside the studio is this wall that runs alongside their parking lot. And it is a, it is a night out of the third man. Fog. <laughs> footsteps echoing and the the chauffeur says perhaps over here sir and wells walks over to the Ro the roman wall and he hugs me and he says billy thank you for everything i will always love you i said well thank you mr wells it is a joy in my life that i did and then he starts to pee on the Roman wall. And it was like Niagara Falls echoing through the mist. And there was one light in the middle of the parking lot that was filtered through and everything, the light. And I walked off to the sound of it being, and it was really like a scene out of a movie. I will never, ever forget it, you know. Well, what a perfect way to end the okay. podcast on... <laughs> a perfect okay. image okay. billy this has really okay. been terrific you know uh i just want to say for me personally thank you so much for your work you and your partner have been an inspiration to me and my career and for me this is like talking pitching with sandy koufax so i really thank you. appreciate I'm available it. at all times and there you go, one of the legendary writer-directors of Hollywood, Bill Persky. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, here's my email address. Write it down, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I will write you back. I'm also on Twitter, who isn't? at Ken Levine, and you can find me on Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Back next week with more. Wear a mask, stay safe, 
I'll talk to you next week. Hollywood. Hey.